0: Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to the next episode of Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we're continuing our discussion of the Mormon view of the Godhead. Last time we went over a little bit of Mormon social Trinitarianism and what that would look like in Mormonism, as well as the logical problem of the Trinity in regards to Mormon thought. And we discussed how, as far as the logical problem of the Trinity goes, the premises are not necessarily contradictory unless you add the idea of metaphysical monotheism, which means God is of one kind, the Creator, and everything else is created and He's the only kind divine and that throws everything else in there into contradiction with each other. So we talked about that and we talked about how the Mormon view resolves that because we don't put metaphysical monotheism. And now we're going to go into a section called the divine kind. And so we're talking about the kind of being that God is and in, in the Mormon view humans are also of the divine kind and we're going to talk about what that means and what it what it means to be of the divine kind and Jacob's going to talk about that so go ahead
1: so you start off by saying it's clear that the key issue is what's entailed in the divine nature or in other words what it means to be the same kind as the most high god so first off we've been using the the word nature a lot now are you distinguishing it all here with divine kind Or is this another way to explain it and then see how we're using the word kind in the scriptures?
2: So I begin this discussion with looking at kind statements in the Hebrew scriptures. And the scriptures have a view of what constitutes a kind because when the animals were created in Genesis, for instance, it talks about kinds. And what it has in mind are natural kinds, that is, When we're talking about what constitutes a fish or what constitutes moving things or what constitutes the kinds of things that would be mammals, it has that kind of a notion of kind. Now, it's not a fully informed scientific notion, and exactly where we would put a platypus may be an interesting question about what constitutes a kind, but there is this notion of kind. Now, the Mormon scriptures assert in no uncertain terms and Acts asserts in, in very clear terms that we are, in some sense, the offspring of God. Now, I don't unpack that fully and don't intend to unpack that fully in this volume. Um, I will clarify something, and that is that I'm not asserting that there is a heavenly mother who is impregnated by a heavenly father and gives birth to a spirit child. So you would have two deity with a resurrected body who impregnates another deity who is a goddess who then has a spirit child. And exactly how you know that would happen and so forth would be simple speculation or even whether that's what it means to say we're offspring. I assert, however, that what it means is minimally that we are the same kind as God is in, in an analogical way to the way we would think about natural kinds. Whatever is essential to the divine nature is something that we participate in, in potentiality. And remember, we talked about the difference between an acorn and an oak tree. And what they have in kind is precisely that they have a common DNA. Makes it easier if you have some kind of an essence like that, that we can look at and say, well, we have the same DNA that God does, and that's what makes us divine. But that's not what I'm asserting, is that we have the same DNA. And I later in in the chapter define what constitutes the divine nature, and we can talk about that. And so when I'm asserting that we have the divine nature and that we're of the divine kind, I'm asserting something different than we simply participate in the DNA of God. And I want to make that clear. I'm not making that assertion. I'm not denying that assertion per se, but it's not necessary to the notion that I'm presenting.
1: Okay. Now, before we get into your definition of the divine nature, let's talk a little bit about the certain properties that a kind that is shared among the most high God and, and subordinate gods looks like.
2: Well, what the kind looks like is the same way that the kind water looks like. We know what water is, and I've used this analogy numerous times, but I think it's a good analogy to kind of explain. We have certain properties that are actuated when we are in a certain kind of a relationship. And what I want to assert is not that we are parts of God, like an atom of oxygen into atoms of hydrogen or parts of a water molecule. What I'm asserting is that a certain kind of glory, power, knowledge, and energy interpenetrates the persons, originating from the persons, but penetrating into the other persons and sharing fully in this interpenetration. We call that perichoresis in the last discussion. And that when that that occurs, because we're the type of beings that we are, we transform ourselves in this relationship into something more than we are when we are considered individually. So that a person in this kind of loving relationship is a fully mature human being and participates in the divine nature. And this is critical to understand. The divine nature is a relational property. It is not an individual property. So I have the divine nature, but it can't be actuated unless I'm in this kind of relationship. It doesn't emerge unless we have this close abiding relationship in the same way that water doesn't emerge from molecules of hydrogen and oxygen unless they're in a molecular relationship.
1: And I just want to read just a short bit here about what you say. Some of those properties are that when we're in that indwelling relationship, by virtue of participating in that type of relationship, We share in the glory, power, and knowledge of the one true God, the Father. All right, now uh, you give quite an extensive definition of the divine nature, which you talked about a little bit. And I want to dive a little bit more into that joined in a relationship, because in E, which uh, if you're listening to the podcast, you can go and read the whole divine nature if you want. But you say that X is potentially joined in a relationship of a perfect loving unity with other fully divine persons. Why is it here potentially and not necessarily? Well,
2: if it were necessary, there wouldn't be any room for, for love in any sense, because love can't be something that's necessary. It can't be something that's coerced. It can't be something that exists just because we exist. Love is a free choice to enter into this kind of relationship moment to moment. And thus, it can only be potential. There will be some who don't choose this relationship. So just like a, a, an atom of oxygen is potentially in a, in a molecular relationship, and when in that relationship, gives rise to certain properties that it can't do on its own. So we have the potential to be in this relationship, but we can't be in this relationship unless we choose to love each other with a perfect love, and in doing so, willing to share our hearts with one another and willing to indwell in one another and to fully share the energy of our lives with one another. In other words, to be a divine person doesn't mean that we are in this relationship, it just means we have the capacity to be so.
1: Okay. And I just wanted to make that distinction because later when we start talking about God, meaning either just the Most High God or the three individuals in the relationship.
2: Well, let's, let's walk through the definition and then I'll just kind of comment on each of the subparts because they're each essential.
1: Okay, let's go ahead with, uh, so divine nature. For all X, X possesses the divine nature if and only if the following properties are actualized when X is joined in indwelling unity with others of the kind divine. A, X is a person. B, X has perfect cognitive faculties and knows immediately all things that can be known. C, X can act immediately immediately to bring about any result possible for maximal power. D, X is present to all things as the potential to act in all places whatsoever. And again, E is potentially joined in a relationship of perfect, loving unity with other fully divine persons.
2: So let me break it down. We're gonna, I'm going to break down in a minute when we define what a divine person is or what a person is. So I'm not going to fully define that right now, but what a person means is that we are of the kind human. The second part, section B, X has perfect cognitive faculties and knows immediately all things that can be known, is simply the definition of divine knowledge that I gave in volume one, The Attributes of God, so that God has the kind of perfect knowledge that I defined there, but it doesn't include knowledge of the future, but only knowledge of present probabilities. Section C, X can act immediately to bring about any result possible for maximal power, means that God can act in the way that I've defined maximal power, which I consider to be a coherent view of divine omnipotence, and that is to say that God has the power and he can exercise it at any place. D, X is present to all things as the potential to act in all places whatsoever, which is a definition of God's omnipresence, that is, God is present to all things in the sense that he can act at all places without an intermediary. When we act, we depend on intermediaries for our results. So, for instance, when I hit a cue ball, I use a stick. One cue ball hits the other. I have to use intermediaries, even if it's just minimally acting through my body, in order to bring about results in the world. God does not have to act through intermediaries. He's immediately present and can immediately realize his will at all places and E, X is joined potentially in a relationship of perfect loving unity with other divine persons. Note that the relationship is with other fully divine persons, and I made the distinction between a fully divine person and simply a divine person. A divine person is one that has the potential to be joined in this relationship, and a fully divine person is one that's actually in this relationship and therefore manifest the properties that I've just mentioned of perfect knowledge, perfect power, and perfect presence and has perfect cognitive faculties. So what we're talking about, the fullness of divinity, and and we'll get into this in later chapters, because the fullness here is is the Greek term pleroma, used repeatedly in the New Testament. And it's a very technical term, but it is intimately tied with deification and the fullness of deity. And so I think unpacking that gives a better idea how volume one is necessary to carry on this kind of conversation and what we mean by this. But that a person who participates in this kind of relationship also has these kinds of properties as a result of being in that relationship. That is, when a divine person enters into a perfectly loving relationship and becomes a fully divine person, they then have, as a shared reality with the other fully divine persons, an emergent property that exists in that relationship of participating fully in all of the divine attributes to the fullest extent. That is, they're a fully divine person. So when I'm saying that the divine persons, when we talk about the divine persons in the Godhead, from all eternity they have been fully divine persons, except for during the period that they canonically empty themselves to become human. The Father has done it according to Joseph Smith. The Son has done it according to the New Testament. And according to Joseph Smith, the Holy Ghost will one day become mortal. And during the time that they are mortal, they are not fully divine but they are divine persons. That is, they participate in the divine nature because they have all of the essential properties of being of the kind divine. They simply haven't realized the capacities and fullness of that nature in the same way that an acorn hasn't actuated and fully realized the potential of being a fully grown oak tree. That's a bad analogy to this extent. It's not like if we just If you just water us and feed us and fertilize us, we're going to grow into fully divine persons and be gods. That's not how that works. It works by making a free choice to fully love one another. And the purpose of this life has been set up by our Father as one with each of the divine persons in the Godhead to create a plan whereby he'll give us commandments that teach us how to love one another in a way that we are prepared to enter in fully into this relationship so that we can be and fully participate in everything that they are and have. And so that's that's what I'm talking about in terms of what it means to have a, a divine nature.
1: And then like you said, it's necessary to then define what a person is especially in Mormon thought because we don't believe that being human is essential to you being a person or you call it an individual essence. There's kind of this thought of, before, we were spirit children of Heavenly Father, and then some have even taken, well, even before that, we were some sort of intelligence. Some say, you know, maybe, what what exactly was that? We don't know. Maybe just some sort of intelligent matter that God then somehow spiritually begot us. As we've talked about before, that uh, is not something Joseph Smith ever taught. But you begin to unpack this and say, okay, let's, let's define what a person as an individual essence is. Right, I'll go ahead and uh, read that like we did with the divine nature, and then you can make comments and expand. For an individual essence, for all X, X is a person if and only if, A, X has cognitive and conative faculties, B, X is potentially conscious and self-determining if fully mature, and C, X exists of ontological necessity as an instantiated individual essence from all eternity. D, X is eternally related to others who are persons. And E, X instantiates the divine nature.
2: So when we talk about divine persons, it's necessary to define what a person is. The big divide between the Latin trinity and the social trinitarians is that when Latin trinitarians talk about persons, they fudge on the word persons from our perspective. That is, we have a modern definition of what a person is, and a person is a human being who has cognitive and conative faculties. And by that, what I mean is cognitive faculties are the ability to reason, the ability to be aware of oneself and others, and all the cognitive faculties that we have, conative faculties are are faculties of emotion, value assessment, and so forth. Now, I want to point out We have these faculties, but having a faculty doesn't mean that we're fully prepared to use it. And here's one of the things I want to keep in mind. Keep in mind a six-month-old baby who is certainly a person. They have cognitive and conative faculties, but they are not fully developed. X is potentially conscious and self-determining and fully mature is the same thing. By potentially conscious, I mean we could become aware that we're aware and to be conscious of our world around us and the fact that we're a self apart from other selves and that we're aware of of our stream of consciousness and our thoughts and we have essentially a memory of those thoughts if we're fully mature. Now a six-month-old baby does not have this kind of consciousness but potentially has these faculties when fully mature. By fully mature, I mean there's a full expression and development of these faculties. For females, that happens around 20, and for, for males, it happens around 25 to 26 years of age if you're a normal functioning mortal. And C, exists of ontological necessities and instantiated individual essence from all eternity means this. Now, when I'm talking about ontological necessity, what I mean is we cannot fail to exist. We cannot not exist. And so we don't depend on anything else for our existence, and nothing can make it so that we don't exist and the type of existence we have is that of an individual essence that means there are certain defining properties that are unique to me in all of the universe that no other person has and so i have certain properties about me that are non-replicable and so an individual essence is that set of properties that is unique to me and not shared by anybody else or it also includes the properties that i may share with others But are part of making me uniquely me. Okay. D, X is eternally related to other persons. This is a part of pointing out that we exist in an eternal scheme in a world already populated where there are others, and essentially we exist in this kind of symbiotic relationship. In this life, of course, we can't come into this life except through the pain and life of another. However, in all of eternity, we still exist in these relationships. Now, we can choose to shut others out, but that would then be the relationship of shutting others out. That's still a relationship. And X instantiates the divine nature simply means that we have the potentiality to be fully divined, as I've already defined. To be a person is to have the potentiality to participate in the fullness of divinity. However, what that means is that we already are of the kind divine. We just haven't fully matured. So divinity becomes fully mature humanity on this view.
1: All right. And also for this view, you say that a person needs to have a particular view of intelligences, which we have in Mormon scripture, like in the book of Abraham. What is that view of intelligences? and Why is that necessary for this view?
2: I've written at length on Joseph Smith's view of the eternal intelligences. And as it was fully developed... He believed that eternal spirits are simply identical to eternal intelligences. There's no period before which eternal spirits exist, okay? So they exist from all eternity. There's no creation about them. But they also have properties of being able to freely choose and make decisions. And intelligence connotes exactly that. Intelligence, the ability to make decisions, the ability to understand, and the ability to be aware of oneself. Now, B. H. Roberts did a lot to flesh out exactly what he thought that meant, and it includes at least eternally conscious and sentient beings. And so I'm rejecting other points of view that I think arose later and are not what Joseph Smith was teaching, I'm rejecting the Pratt-Bruce R. McConkie view of intelligences, and I'm rejecting the view that humans don't have pre-existence that is universal in traditional Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. However, it may be that there are certain forms of Confucianism and Buddhism, especially, that would adopt this notion of eternal intelligence, surprisingly enough. Okay? So what it requires, the view that I've elucidated here, assumes the view that I believe Joseph Smith taught, and I've argued that he taught, as a basis for defining what a human being is or what it means to be a person.
1: All right. And then last part here. So we are essentially related to others in an eternal web of relationships in which the influences of others are embodied in the very fabric of our personal identity. Indeed, the very point of referring to the common light of Christ in Mormon scripture, which we all share as the very basis and condition of being conscious, from D&C 8811, highlights the fact that our consciousness is a social reality that involves the presence of otherness in our so-called self-consciousness.
2: That's very important, but it's really the next quote I had in mind.
1: Okay. Here you talk about the difference between the gods and then the gods in the Godhead. So the difference between the gods and the council of the gods and the divine persons of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost is that the latter have chosen to be in a relationship of indwelling unity from all eternity. The gods and the council of gods are the same kind of being as the divine persons in the Godhead. They have the capacity to be joined as one with them, if they freely choose. If they are joined in indwelling unity with the Godhead, then they actualize the divine properties. One does not have to be in the unity of the Godhead to possess the divine nature any more than a baby must be able to think rationally to be human. However, one must have the potential for such divine unity to possess the divine nature, and it is therefore the potential of having a fullness of divinity that defines those who possess the divine nature.
2: That's the essence of it, and I simply want to point out one of the criticisms of this, of my point of view is that somehow it makes the divine persons in the Godhead a different kind than human beings, and that's simply not true. We're the same kind. We're the same natural kind, and when fully divine, we participate fully in every great making or divine property of the Godhead, and as fully as each of the members of the Godhead now, each of the divine persons. So there's nothing that we're lacking at all in terms of being different than they are. We, don't, we aren't the, a different kind, and we don't have a different potential to be something different than they do. And what they are is what they're inviting us to be. And we do that by fully realizing our humanity.
1: All right. Uh, well, that takes us into the next section, which uh, kind of segues very nicely into. It's called Indwelling Love. And Corey's going to take that section
0: all right so yeah we've been talking about that the divine kind and the properties of divinity or full divinity only arise within a indwelling love relationship so now we're going to talk about what that is so i'll start out with this well just over you we're we a few quotes we're gonna talk about it and then you kind of go over where you get this based on the mormon scriptures like where are you getting these ideas from as something that's valid to your argument So, first off, you start out, the properties of godliness or the divine nature are realized when a person who possesses the divine nature are joined as one in a relationship of loving, indwelling unity. And you give an analogy, it's like a light bulb in the presence of a power source. The light bulb is potentially a source of light, and this potentiality is realized when it enters into a certain relation with the power source. So it is with the divine persons. The potentiality for divinity is realized by accepting the Divine Light into one's very soul and being. They become actualized by participating in the Divine Light that proceeds from the presence of God to fill them. When a person is filled with the Light from God, the properties of the Divine Nature that are possessed in potentiality are actualized, and they then also become a source of the Divine Light. Thus, the Divine Persons actualize their divine potential when they share their Light with each other. Well, question, I guess, right off the bat. So, I mean, I understand this is just an analogy, but as you mentioned, people have criticized your view saying they're two different things, and I, you know, I I won't say that the argument that they're two different kinds has any validity, but here, use an analogy saying God is a power source and we are something that uses the power, those are two very different things. I mean, I, I guess this is just an analogy, so I can't really criticize the particulars of it, but when you put it like that, it does kind of make it sound like a light bulb is never going to be the source of electricity, it will always only be a receptor and can never produce its own light.
2: That's a strange conclusion when I expressly state that when they actualize their potential, they quote, also become a source of divine light, unquote. Okay. You know, they, they become everything that the Father is, let me use another analogy we're all pieces of iron we are potentially magnetized when we enter into relation with a magnetized piece of iron we we become magnetized and share fully in the magnetism in fact it's not a bad analogy either for what it means to be perichoretically joined in unity that is to say that we become one and we indwell in each other and so the magnetism is a property that we come to share. We're as much a magnet as the first magnet when we become magnetized, and we can then magnetize other pieces of iron as well. So you could think of God the Father as being a magnet who then passes his magnetism along to others. That, by the way, this is a medieval analogy used by some in the Orthodox tradition, so I can't take full credit for it, but it's a pretty good analogy.
0: It is. Okay. And that makes sense. And I, I don't know, we've talked about that last time, kind of, where the first magnetism would have arisen from, but if you say it's eternal, we can just go off that for now.
2: Magnetism's an eternal property that iron just happens to have. It has the potential to become magnetized, and magnetism is just, you know, you might say that's
0: one of the basic forces of the universe, so there you have it. Well, at least in this universe that we know of. All right, so now we're going to, like I said, go over the some different Mormon scriptures where you're kind of using as your sources for some of this idea. And I like that. I mean, all of your stuff, I don't always include it in the podcast, but, you know, you usually back it up with scriptures. And now we're just going to kind of go over that because a lot of people are like, oh, you know, this is what makes it not necessarily, you know, you're not just making stuff up. You're getting this from the scriptures and then interpreting it it to the best of your ability. Anyway, so the Mormon scriptures are unique in that they identify the three divine persons as one God who are in each other. The references in the Mormon canon are clear on this point. So I'm gonna go over a few of them. So in Second Nephi thirty one twenty-one, the part that's relevant it says, the true doctrine of Christ and the only true doctrine of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, which is one God without end. So that's they're referring to them as one God there.
2: Yeah, and what's important there is the singular verb form is. Joseph Smith went through and changed a lot of the verb forms where it said is to are But this one he left unchanged, and so it says, which is one God, which is a very interesting verb form in English.
0: I agree. All right, the next one is from Doctrine and Covenants, section 20, verse 28. And the part that we're talking about here says, Which Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are one God, infinite and eternal, without end? So again, he's conflating three of them as one God, three of them being one. This next one is from Doctrine and Covenants, section 50, verse 43. It says, And the Father and I are one. Uh, this is obviously Christ talking. I am in the Father, and the Father in me, and inasmuch as ye received me, or ye are in me, and I in you. So, that's a very important one. Just for pointing out that when we enter into that divine relationship, we will be one as well. At least in whatever sense that they're talking about here, That which is why we're even talking about this. So, next, 3rd Nephi. Chapter nine, verse fifteen: Behold, I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I created the heavens and the earth and all things that in them are. I was with the Father from the beginning. I am in the Father, and the Father in me, and in me hath the Father glorified His name. So that I think is a example of the perichoresis that you talked about of them being in, you know, this indwelling in one another. Next, third Nephi, eleven twenty-seven. The Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost are one, and I am in the Father, and the Father in me, and the Father and I are one. So kind of the same thing, just stating that again. Apparently, Third Nephi is a goldmine for that, because chapter 11, verse 36, has another, the end of it says, for the Father and I, and the Holy Ghost are one. Next, Mormon, chapter 7, verse 7, unto the Father, and unto the Son, and unto the Holy Ghost, which are one God. So, these texts suggest two rather clear implications. First, the word God is ambiguous in the sense that the one God can mean either the Father alone or the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost united as one God. And another implication is that the unity of the three divine persons is a divine indwelling where they are actually one in each other.
2: I'd point out a third and that's that they have been one from all eternity, from the very beginning, meaning it's beginningless. And so the eternity of the divine unity is also expressed in these scriptures.
0: And then I wrote some random questions here. Hopefully they still make sense. So let me just read this, and then if I need to restate it, I will. So other than the fact that the scriptures seem to say that it's essential that this divine relationship is eternal, meaning, you know, like we are one God from eternity, logically, though, does this relationship have to be eternal? I ask that because if not, then potentially this relationship of indwelling love among these three beings could have sprung into existence at some point, and it wouldn't really change anything as long as it was long enough ago that the universe as we know it didn't exist.
2: No, obviously it's not essential that they'd be in this relationship because relationships can't be essential. It can't be the fact that I choose to love another person in the same way that a circle is round. So a circle is essentially round, that's what it means to be a circle, but we are not essentially loving. We choose to be loving, so it could be otherwise. So it's possible that they would not have loved each other this way from all eternity. And it's not logically required. The basis for believing that they have been in this loving relationship from all eternity is the same reason to believe that there are three in the Godhead, and the same reason to believe, in fact, that there's even a God, and that is, as the scriptures say so. God has revealed it that way. And I adopt the view that I think is consistent with the lectures on faith that the only basis for knowing about God and believing about God are personal disclosures and revelation. And so, for me, that's a sufficient basis, but the fact is it could have been otherwise.
0: Okay. And I only ask that just because, again, this is speculating, like I like to do and everyone does, but I wrote, if all it takes to be divine is to have two or three beings of whatever intelligence is that, you know, every being that has intelligence like at least the kind we're talking about is then couldn't any three beings have formed into such a union so how do we know there aren't other divine unions and logically they could be i'm i know we're going off of scriptures what's been revealed to us but this comes into play later when we're talking about the supremacy of god in this universe and i guess versus different mormon views so you know there's different mormon views where there's an the eternal chain of different gods and you know we understand why you reject some of that but logically i don't see how if you say it's not logically necessary that the relationship was eternal then it doesn't preclude that other beings could have could have and are potentially or will make their own relationship separate from this godhead if the divinity arises from divine beings in an indwelling relationship then technically any three divine beings could create this relationship unless I'm missing something.
2: Well, it just happens to be the fact that the scriptures are revealed that the Father is the source of this divine relationship. Whether some other being could have been the source, I don't see anything that would logically, I mean, it's not logically necessary that God even exists in my view. It just happens to be the case that God exists of ontological necessity but there's not a logical argument. I don't buy into any of the ontological arguments. And so could it have been somebody besides Jesus who became the Savior? Could another divine person be the Holy Ghost? I accept the scriptural assertion that it is the Father who is the source of divinity and has been from all eternity. It just happens to be a matter of fact, just the way that the universe exists as a matter of fact. But it's not logically necessary. But then There are a lot of things that aren't logically necessary and just happen to be matters of fact. I would say the same thing about intelligences. There's not some argument that show that we exist of logical necessity. That's not to say that we don't exist of ontological necessity in the way that I've defined it. Nothing else causes us to exist. Nothing can cause us to cease to exist. And we don't depend on anything else for existence. That means the eternal existence of intelligences is eternal. That's the definition. But there's no logical proof of that. It just happens to be the case that we exist.
0: Okay. So, yeah, I mean, I guess that's part of it. But my real question is I'm not saying that someone else was God from all eternity. I'm saying, can't there, logically at least, be other divine separate? I'm just trying to point out is, and this is where a lot of, you know, maybe mainstream Christians would have a problem with this, and maybe even other Mormons were, uh, show me how you can get around this. But God is the source of divinity. I see him maybe like a sun who has some sort of, I mean, it's analogy, a, a gravitational pull, there's a bunch of planets, but another sun can exist and have his own gravitational pull of planets and it can spring up anywhere else. So, it, it doesn't seem like, it, according to your definition, he would be u- unique because if another set of beings form this relationship simultaneous or, you know, somewhere across the, maybe not this universe, I don't know, maybe it's getting confusing then, but If all it requires is three beings joining in this indwelling relationship, what if they did enter into this relationship, but separate from the Heavenly Father that we are referring to now?
2: There's not a logical reason why that can't be. It just happens to be a matter of fact that it isn't, according to what has been revealed. And that's why when people call my view a systematic theology, I reject it. There's not like some first starting point from which I can derive all other principles like Thomas Aquinas does when he gives uh, like a cosmological argument and everything else follows from it. What I do is I present a coherent view that makes sense of the scriptures, but it's not a systematic theology as such. I'm just doing my best to understand what the Mormon revelations have delivered to us and how that fits together. And I think it's just a marvelous fabric that fits together in a very inspiring and remarkable way. And that's what I'm expressing here. But it doesn't have to be the case that could there have been three other beings? Well, there's no logical reason why not. It just happens to be the fact that there isn't, and that it's the Father who's the source. That we know of. Well, the Father has revealed himself as the source, and the Son has revealed the Father as the source. And so the scriptures aren't really ambiguous on this point. All glory is given to the Father, and there isn't, outside of this Godhead, there aren't any other gods except for those who are in a divine relationship with this Godhead, which has been divine from all eternity. And so, you know, it just happens to be a matter of revealed truth that this is the case. I don't have an argument suggesting that it couldn't be otherwise. I have an argument saying that that's not good exegetical analysis.
0: Okay. I just ask, I guess, because I'm getting at is, is God the source of divinity, or is divinity something emergent from the type of being the god is and it could it, i don't know you know what i'm saying like it could be someone else at the same time like let's say at the other end of the universe is beyond whatever god has and even within what he has control there what if there's another godhead
2: i think the best way to express it is to say that the kind of individual essence that the father is is to be the source is just a part of who the father is and so it's just that it's unique to him and all the universe to be the source of this kind of a divine relationship. And there are two others who from all eternity have chosen to be in that kind of relationship with the Father. Could have the Father chosen another divine being to be the Savior? Possibly the Holy Ghost, but the Scripture suggests that there are unique properties that are unique to Jesus Christ that make him either the ideal candidate or the necessary candidate to be the Savior. And so there can't be another Savior. There has to be this particular Savior, and if he doesn't pull it off, we're all lost more glory to him for doing it, that kind of thing.
0: In the past, you've said that the reason that God is God now and that we aren't is because he from all eternity, I guess it doesn't matter from all eternity, but right now he has chosen to be in this indwelling relationship, and that's where his divinity comes from. And the reason we're not divine is because we're not doing that. I guess I'm just asking, I'm trying to lead you along to get out of the criticisms against your view, because if... There is something unique about the Heavenly Father, and that only He could have done it. Then I don't see how you can say that it just happens that, or like He only is divine because He chose to be in a relationship, because now it seems He's only divine because He happens to be different than everyone else.
2: I don't see that as being true at all. It may be that only Einstein had the capacity to come up with the theory of relativity. Certainly, at the time He did it, that's true. That doesn't make him different from us or a different human being. The fact that the Father has this particular individual essence that makes him the source of divinity doesn't mean that he's the only one who can participate in in the fullness of divinity or that he's a different kind it's just the unique property that he had to be able to love others so fully that they could fully share in everything that he is we all have these kinds of unique capacities and it doesn't make us any less human that we have this kind of uniqueness
0: um and then last question before we move on is i've asked this before but so now that we've cleared that so when we share in this divine nature, are we joining, well, I, we ha- I don't know, we kind of have to define what the Godhead is, and then can we join in what is referred to as the Godhead, or are we only joining in to divinity, in your view? Well,
2: the semantic, the Godhead happens to be the three divine persons that are defined as the Godhead, and referred as the Godhead in scripture. Could we say that there's a, an identical sense in which we're all part of the Godhead? And the answer is yes. There is an identical sense in which we fully participate in the fullness of divinity to become everything that the divine persons are. Does that mean we become part of the Godhead? It means we fully participate in the divine nature. The Godhead is a different matter. The Godhead are those to whom we give honor and glory because they have demonstrated through their love the ability that we have to share fully with them and everything that they are, and it's due to their action, not ours. It's due to them... That we have the possibility to realize our potential, and so we owe them honor and recognize their authority, and we'll always give them the full glory just out of sheer gratitude and love for them, so that the difference again is is one of precedence of honor, not precedence of ontological status or precedence of being you know, a fullness of divinity and that kind of judgment,
0: okay, and I guess this brings it home so We talked about throughout the first chapters how these ascension narratives where a person is exalted and they are said to sit on the right hand of God. And you have kingship monotheism where God is a king. So we see, you know, let's take the earthly analogy of a king. A king is a human. Humans are humans. The king happens to have power given to him by, I mean, you know, in reality it's given to him by the other beings who honor him as the leader. Because they see his superior, hopefully, intelligence and leading abilities and someone that inspires. Maybe that, you know, maybe it's more of a democratic thing. You'd have to elect someone like that rather than just taking power. But, you know, somehow there's this, you recognize that they're the same kind as you, but above you in certain respects. Not above, but like, you know, they have superior, I mean, we just say God is more intelligent than they all. Meaning you recognize he has something more realized than you do. And then I've again, I use the analogy a lot of like a karate sensei and then a student he is superior. So, when you, and I, get, I think we'll probably get into this in later chapters, but the question is, when you see humans participating in the divine nature or being brought into this indwelling loving relationship with God, are we then co-equal with God as far as joining him as like a co-king? Are we always this word that you use that I think another, it's kind of a trigger word for people that are criticizing you is subordinate. If we're always subordinate to someone, then it seems to contradict another thing that you've been trying to develop that God wants true peers. And when I picture peers, I picture more maybe a democratic council or judges where maybe there is a leader, but he only leads the discussion and keeps order rather than Having more power necessarily. Everyone has equal power because they have an equal say in things.
2: The scriptures actually answer that in spades. I mean, we actually have a theology where we each become a king, priest, and a queen and a priestess. I mean, if you read Revelation, we're all going to have a throne. We'll all have a divine robe. We'll all have a crown. And that's the point that the Father is bringing us to be everything that He is and share with us everything that He has. In the ascension of Isaiah, Isaiah sees that there are crowns and thrones waiting for us in the celestial world. And so Christianity just happens to be an expression of kingship monotheism, and that is that what we're looking at is this very sense of kingship, and it's a good analogy because the king isn't different than we are. It's simply that we honor the king for the king's protection of us and king providing for us, which certainly is what God does, but it's even more than that. I mean. This is true of every human being that's ever lived, possibly ever will live. We come into this world in the pain of our mothers, and there's no way that we can repay them for what they went through to just give us life. And it just happens to be the case that our mothers will always be due a fullness of honor and gratitude for just that sure act in and of itself, where they each walk through the valley of the shadow of death in order to give us life in this world. That doesn't change, and it doesn't change the fact that God is the one through his love and his outreach to us and his plan to bring us to be what he is. We always owe him this honor just because of the nature of our relationship with him and the priority of the relationship. Now, I'm not any less human than my mother is, but there will never come a a point where I don't owe her this gratitude, and it's the same with the Father. I explain at length the honor and shame codes that define the concepts of grace and Paul in the second volume. That's really the world in which we're operating, is this world where we honor each other and and give gratitude for the things that have been done for us. The difference isn't in kind, but it's the appropriateness of our recognition, the appropriateness of recognizing that we will always, throughout all of eternity, owe this debt that can never be paid. And that we've never been asked to repay because it was given to us out of sheer love and grace. And that's kind of the essence of Christianity when you get down to it. The goal has always been to have a nation of kings and priests and queens and priestesses. It's always been to have a nation of prophets. It's always been to bring us to be everything that God is. The essence of Christianity is that through Christ, we become fully what the Father is because he has made it possible for us to do that through his suffering. That means that through all eternity, we'll owe him gratitude and honor for what he did. And so that's really the kind of judgment that we're dealing with here. It's a different kind of judgment than a logical assertion that somehow, you know, if if you're talking about Catholic or Protestant theology, God is just a very different kind of being than we are. No matter how much we grow, we'll never be anything like God at all. We couldn't even aspire to it. God can't be anything like a human being at all. But the very essence of Christianity is that God became a human being and shared everything that we are so that we could share everything that he is. And so what I want to assert is that Joseph Smith's revelations give us incredible insights into the meaning of the world and teachings of, of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. But this model of the Godhead where love is really what God is and what he's invited us to share in, is really the most motivating, the most worthwhile, the most valuable thing potentially even that we can conceive in the universe. That's why it's worthy of our pondering and thought and motivation. To me, this is the the most motivating thing possible. We just happen to be the kind of beings, there's nothing logical about this, there's no logical proof of it. We just happen to be the kind of beings that thrive in loving relationships, that grow in loving relationships, and that fully realize our potential when we give love and receive love. It's just the kind of beings we are. There's nothing logically necessary about it. It's just the way that it is.
0: I have one last question that piggybacks off, though. So I've heard it said from some other Mormon thinkers that perhaps the end goal is to create an equivalent to Zion in heaven with God. So that's why it's kind of a semantic thing, like you said, about joining the Godhead. But maybe the Godhead could become a large community of indwelling beings, Oh, I don't know. I just I was asking, is it always restricted to three, or why what if God is all these beings that have come before, and we know that there's been other planets that have come and gone? We know that at least at least one because Joseph Smith said God came down to an earth and learned an experience, and looking at the universe, you'd have to imagine there's probably throughout time, let's say tons and tons of different planets with the same intelligent beings that have come and they've lived their life and they've gone here, so I don't know what your view is on whether or not some of them could have already become exalted to some sense, or is your view that everybody has eternally been waiting on whenever Jesus has a second coming on this particular planet before exaltation can happen?
2: Okay, first of all, it is just a semantic distinction. If what you mean by Godhead is all those who participate fully in the divine nature, then the divine Godhead potentially includes every human being who ever has or ever will live. If it means the way that God, the, the scriptures use the word Godhead, then it means the three divine persons from all eternity. That's not a mere semantic difference. The scriptural difference is a, is a very important difference. But if that's how you want to define things, I have no problem with that. Uh, and it works. And what's your second question again?
0: Are there potentially beings already exalted and co... I don't know. Just When some people say that they pray to God, they're picturing not just the one father, they're maybe he's the one that will answer the prayers or something, but they're, you know, they picture, and, you know, maybe we can't go into this here, but like, you know, they, they're ancestors even, and they picture a, the heavenly family. Now, you don't like the mother of God, but they, they picture that because that's kind of a, a very popular Mormon view of the divine family. They say, when I say God, I'm talking about an entire community of divine beings, not just one being per se. I'm just saying, do you think that's, even a possibility logically? Or do you think that no one has been exalted or will be exalted until the second coming on our earth? And if so, that seems like a whole trillions of years that some beings could have potentially been waiting, but maybe time doesn't mean anything after death. Who knows?
2: Well, no, I would assert that there undoubtedly are exalted beings. I mean, I think that DNC 132 asserts that, that Abraham has achieved his exaltation, that kind of thing. So. And certainly, Jesus Christ has been fully exalted. There's no question about that. So, the fact that there may have been other other earths from all eternity, there may have been other gods for vast periods of time that may even count as an eternity to some people, other than the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, who have achieved fully their exaltation. Now, they're not disclosed to us, and I assume that there's a good reason that they're not. And we're not asked to give them honor and to pray to them. We're not asked to give them the glory of recognizing them as the, as the source of the creation or of our salvation. And so let me assert this. There are angels in the Bible, obviously, and a good many of these appear to be exalted beings. And so there may well be exalted beings who are angels in our lives, who are around about us, uh, above us and below us and to each side, who help us on a daily basis. I'm certainly open to that possibility. In fact, I believe I felt their influence in my life at times. I don't pray to them, I don't worship them, but I'm grateful for whatever assistance they're willing to give me because I can use all the assistance I can get. So certainly it's a part of the Judeo-Christian tradition and Islamic tradition that there are angels and that these angels are in the presence of God and that they are the kind of beings that God are in terms of that they share in the divine glory.
0: And I guess... Very last question. I promise that we'll move on. So just for Mormons, a lot of Mormons are, you know, based their view of being a divine being and a God based on kind of the Brigham Young model, which I know you reject, but they picture that they will, what it means to be God is, you know, God's my work and my glory is to bring to pass the the immortality and eternal life of men. So they picture whatever means that When a being is exalted, they'll do what the Father does, meaning they, too, will lead. Somehow they'll be leaders and be able to lead people to their exaltation as well. And I know you don't agree with that. So if that's not what we do as divine beings, what does a divine being do?
2: It's not really a view of indwelling glory or shared divine love that brings it about, though. It's more I, I mastered the concepts of science. And so now I can be everything that God is. That's my primary objection to it, is I think it misleads us as to what's really important. I don't think technical knowledge is what's important. I think loving relationships are. And I think that it's misleading to suggest that if we just learn enough in um, physics, that somehow we're going to turn into God. That's not the way the scriptures teach it. And so this kind of technological mastery that you're talking about is not the basis of divinity. It may be technological mastery, and we may even call some of the beings who have such technological mastery way above ours gods. But we wouldn't worship them. We wouldn't look to them for our ultimate salvation, because they may or may not be morally good beings. But a being that is fully loving is certainly a morally good being. And so the bottom line is, is that this distinction between technological deity and the kind of indwelling perichoresis as a basis for fullness of divinity that that I believe the scriptures teach us about are worlds apart. They're, they're different views of what constitute divinity.
0: I wasn't trying to ask, I, like, I know you're referring to like the transhumanist type Mormon ideas, but I was referring to more like if, cause when Mormons picture what it's like to be divine, they picture themselves doing what God is doing now. And so. You don't know what Mormons picture. You haven't taken a survey and you haven't asked, you haven't talked to all Mormons.
2: So that's the kind of statement you can't make.
0: A large portion of Mormons, like that's because that's what's taught, is that you know you'll be able to. It's and again, I know it's tied into Brigham Young's thing where people will think that they're going to have spirit children the way that Brigham Young taught their wife and wives or whatever. And I know you don't, and for good reason, we don't agree with that. I'm just saying, what can you replace it with? Then what would you do in the divine life other than honor God all day? Then it, it kind of seems to bring it back to, you know, just the traditional Christian view where we just sit there contemplating the eternalness of how awesome this indwelling love is the whole time like what what do you do you know what you do is you create
2: ever greater relationships and glory and it certainly requires a cooperative endeavor to use power to further organize the world into ever greater realities and so you know it's not the case that we're all sitting around strumming our harps and singing kumbaya to each other as you have pictured it and there's there's nothing in this normal view that you've talked about where we're learning forever that is that is precluded on the view that i have laid out in my books to the contrary i've talked about a divinity that is always self-surpassing where there are new vistas of knowledge to learn in each new moment and we all participate in that and i haven't emphasized this because the subject matter hasn't called for it But if we started talking about the uniqueness of of what we are in our individual essences, we all have a unique contribution to make. And so whatever your contribution is, and, and I suggest it will be that way throughout all eternity, we each have specific kinds of gifts that are ours to give and uniquely ours to give. And if we don't give them, then those gifts aren't received by the universe ever because nobody else can give those gifts. And so there is an individual uniqueness that I haven't addressed or focused upon. but any discussion of eternal intelligences that flesh that out fully would have to address that and express that uniqueness. And so the notion that, you know, all we're doing is sitting around singing hymns to each other for eternity is just not an accurate view. Certainly not
0: on the view I'm presenting. Okay, great. Well, I just wanted you to clarify that. Next, we're going to kind of talk about what it is to have the ontological nature of personal existence. And we can be short on that, but I just wanted to have us go over that. So, Jacob, if you'd kind of take the lead on that one, if you're still there.
1: Like you said, it'll be pretty quick. It's pretty much just defining what we're talking about by ontological necessity and then distinguishing that from consequent necessity. So, you say, if something has always existed and will always exist without being caused by anything else, And if nothing else can cause it to cease to exist, then it exists of what I call ontological necessity. Each of the divine persons, like all personal intelligences, exists because it is their nature to exist from all eternity without beginning and without creation. Do you want to expand on that at all, or is it pretty self-explanatory?
2: Yeah, I mean, all it really means is we don't depend on anyone else for our existence, and nothing can make it so that we cease to exist because our very nature is to exist.
1: That's what I figured. Uh, so now on to what you call consequent necessity. You say if something is caused to exist by another, but has always existed and will always exist because an ontologically necessary being always actively causes it to exist, then it exists of what I shall call consequent necessity. The godhead exists because of consequent necessity.
2: Yeah, so what I'm I'm just defining that the existence of the godhead is not ontologically necessary. It's the result of ontologically necessary beings from all eternity actively causing it to exist. I would point out something else. Nothing outside of the Godhead, nothing outside of the persons who are in this divine unity could cause them to cease to be in this unity. They don't have the power to do it, because the power remember, the power of maximal power arises from being in this relationship, and nobody outside that relationship could have the property of maximal power. So no being outside of this relationship has the capacity or power to cause it to cease to exist, and that's another sense in which it exists of consequent necessity, because the beings that cause it to exist have the power to always cause it to exist, and there's no other power that could cause it to cease to exist.
1: All right, and that, you said, pretty short section, so we'll move from that on to the next section, which uh, Corey will
0: take. All right, so this next section is called The Scriptural Argument for Yahweh's Kind Uniqueness, and... What you do here is you are talking about the view of a scholar named Michael Heiser, and I kind of re- I referred to him back at the beginning of when we were talking about this book, just because he's actually, as far as the Mormon view goes, he's actually quite friendly to it overall, though he kind of pulls back into kind of his own preconceived notion. So he's so close, but then he still puts on, you know, kind of a conservative Christian view spin on it, which we're going to talk about.
2: Well, he has to. I mean, if somebody says, well, your view is just the Mormon view, that would be a sufficient reductio ad absurdum or or reduction to absurdity of his view to reject it. This is an uncharitable way of addressing something because it's just saying it's being guilty by association. And he doesn't want to be guilty by association with Mormons. No Christian wants to be guilty by association with Mormons. But it's a very bad position to take just because one doesn't want to say, well, yeah, I have a Mormon position, but they have to say, well, my position's not Mormon. I wouldn't have anything to do with those schlocks. Everybody knows they're not Christian.
0: Well, anyway, he's a very smart guy. He has some books out. I recommend them. As far as his biblical scholarship goes, it's pretty spot on when he starts talking about the ontology of God, maybe a little off in our view. But anyway, the particular argument we're talking about here is his view of Yahweh being a unique kind, and again, this refers back to what we talked about as metaphysical monotheism, which, you know, if you go over it, you could understand that that view did not arise until hundreds of years after Christ. Maybe some people had something like that of view, but to bring it into the view of the text of the Old Testament, not really something that can be justified. Anyway, he tries. So, he said Michael Heiser concludes, I kind of skipped his argument and went right to the, the point here. He concludes that the Old Testament references to Elohim, which is just referring to, you know, divine beings or God or gods, thus do not entail that the gods share the same divine qualities as the Most High God. He assumes that Mormon writers to their case for the argument that there are gods of the same divine kind as Yahweh on the assumption that all Elohim, referred to the Old Testament, must always be the same species as Yahweh. So what he does is he's saying Elohim doesn't mean God. It just means uh, otherworldly creatures in in this ancient Hebrew or pre-Hebrew view. It just means beings that are in, you know, if you picture again what we talked about at the beginning, kind of like the dome and the firmament, and then there's the the realm of the Elohim. And so that's just these otherworldly beings, not even necessarily divine beings in his view.
2: Well, yeah, the stars, for instance, are deemed to be gods, Elohim. And he points out that really what this means is simply to be an Elohim. It just means to be a part of the heavenly realm. That's how Heiser parses it. And what he's pointing out is, well, look, these these kinds of things are created. The sun, the moon, and the stars are all created beings, and yet they're called Elohim or gods. And so gods are created, and the argument that the term Elohim is used can't possibly mean that they're the same kind as Yahweh, simply because of the use of the word gods. If that were the argument, it would be a bad argument. That's not the argument I give.
0: Okay, yeah, exactly. So you say, well, here's the thing. Let's see, Heiser takes some proof texts and tries to point out, he's like, oh, look, demons are also Elohim. They're also these otherworldly beings. So, you know, it doesn't doesn't mean what you think it means. Um, So he uses a few proof texts, and you say, the proof texts reviewed by Heiser, they don't establish that the sons of God are not the same kind as Yahweh because they are created in the sense that they are ontologically contingent, and he is not. Rather, they merely establish that one, some of the Elohim are not considered to be fully divine beings like Yahweh, and two, some of the heavenly hosts, such as the sun, the moon, and the stars, were created, or rather organized, at the time that the earth was created. The sun, the moon, and the stars already existed to be placed in the firmament. They are created only in the sense that they are organized by taking pre-existing heavenly hosts and placing them in their order in the firmament. I don't know, he might have backed off this view some sense then, just because even from what I have read of him, he points out quite vehemently that creation was from chaos or, you know, from, I don't know, he doesn't say pre-existing matter like Mormons would say, but he does point out that it's not from nothing. So to say that he created the other gods from nothing or any other Elohim and the sun and the moon from nothing, that's not what he has later confirmed, so it's interesting. Any comment on that?
2: Yeah, I agree. I think he has since backed off of that somewhat. And it certainly, I mean, if you look at the, the account narrative in Genesis, it doesn't say God created the stars and the, the sun and the moon and then put them in the firmament. Rather, he creates them by placing them in the firmament. That is the act of creation. What Heiser needed to do instead of just saying, look, I'm going to be guilty by association with Mormon, so I have to reject this view, is do what he always does. He's a good scholar in doing this is let's put myself back in the position, if we can, to try to understand the culture and thought world of the Hebrews that they were speaking of and see what they were actually saying. And it's, you know, obviously when when he says, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, he's not creating those lights. That's what, you know, it says in Genesis 14 when he's creating the lights. What happens is he creates by separating. That's what the word bara means. It means really to cut or to distinguish things from each other, and God creates the the stars in the firmament by separating them in the firmament, the Rachia of the Old Testament, meaning basically the dome in the sky in which the stars and the sun and the moon have been set, and in which we see them if we just look up to the sky, and then we can see it's a big dome holding back a, an ocean that would fall on us if the dome weren't there.
0: All right, so his next point that he tries to argue for is that Yahweh's species uniqueness is established because, quote, Yahweh was considered preexistent to all gods, and as such, contrary to Mormon theology, he had no parents. So, he's obviously addressing the, you know, the Brigham Young strain of thought that God grew up and became a god, and he had parents, and his intelligence was begat into a spirit body, and so forth through eternity. And so, you know, in that criticism of that strain of mormonism he would be right that doesn't match up with the biblical view but you say i obviously as we talked about i also agreed that yahweh had no parents according to hebrews
2: yeah and, and in my view god doesn't have parents for his ultimate existence or for his existence as god per se so his view doesn't apply to the view of kingship monotheism that i've elucidated his argument is that this applicable
0: but, you know, I'm sure it's hard for someone outside of Mormonism to be like, well, I sorry, I didn't know there was like 20 views in Mormonism, but, you know, there's 20 million views in Christianity as it is, so I guess you try to just address the main one. There's many different
2: views of Christianity as there are Christians, and there's many different views of Mormonism as there are Mormons, because no two people have identical concepts sitting in their head. Exactly. So. The reality is most people really have assumptions swimming around in their heads that are pre-critical. They haven't really taken the time to think them through, and they have a lot of contradictory ways of viewing things. A part of what I'm doing is to elucidate this in a way that makes the kinds of distinctions where we can start to say, okay, I hadn't made those distinctions before, and so I wasn't aware of the distinction to be made and to make it clearer.
0: Anyway, regardless of him addressing that specific view his argument still has some problems because you say it relies on isaiah forty-three ten through 12 which the part relevant says you are my witnesses declares yahweh and my servants whom i have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that i am he before me no god was formed and after me there shall not be any so you point out this verse asserts that yahweh has not formed any gods none were formed before him none will be formed after him Heiser is correct that such a view entails that no gods have been birthed as such. However, it seems to entail too much. If Yahweh created the gods, or Elohim, as Heiser claims, then they were formed after him. In that event, Isaiah 43 would conflict with Heiser's claim of the creation of the gods in such scriptures as Nehemiah 9.6 and Psalms 148.1-5. So... I mean, that's just on his face. He may not have seen the consequences of claiming that, but like he says, trying to distance himself from a Mormon view, probably saying too much. Clearly, he doesn't
2: want to deny that there are other gods. He's, he's written a lot about there being gods in the Council of the Gods, and that there were a number of other beings considered to be gods in the Old Testament. So, we can't say this kind of a thing. Clearly, this is a statement by Yahweh of his uniqueness and glory, and his preeminent position it's kind of the hyperbole that we see when Yahweh declares that the other gods are nothing, they don't exist, just like the other city-states that are are not Israel don't exist and they're nothing. But clearly there are other city-states besides Israel. So, you know, it's the kind of hyperbole we get in the New Testament when we're saying that Yahweh is incomparable.
0: Yeah, and he, even in his videos, I, I posted some, he points out that very thing that, you know, like, oh, they use hyperbole all the time. It doesn't mean that there's no other nations other than Israel. It means that they're Israel real superior, and same with God. There's not that there's no other gods, it's just that he is the preeminent superior one. Anyway, he has some more arguments. Uh, we'll just go over them real quick. You say, Heiser's third and fourth arguments assert essentially that Yahweh is species-unique because he has authority that the other Elohim don't have. Heiser asserts that the species-uniqueness is suggested by the fact that Yahweh has power to strip the other gods of their immortality, which is a scriptural reference. But you point out, Very deftly, I would say that any of those premises don't warrant the conclusion that Yahweh would be species unique For you kind of compare it to an army general and his authority. You know, an army general is a human, and his soldiers are also humans, but he has power and authority over them, and he can strip them of their being a soldier or any authority that they have, and that definitely doesn't make him species unique, so there you go. Yeah, it's just a bad argument on Heiser's part at that time. Okay, and then last thing here you say, in the book of Abraham, Jehovah's authority to organize the gods in the heavenly council and give them commands arises from the fact that, quote, I am the Lord thy God, I am more intelligent than they all, which is from Abraham 3.19. So Joseph Smith's King Follett discourse suggests that God's authority also arises from his advanced station and his willingness to assist the other spirits to advance to become as he is. God himself found himself in the midst of spirits and glory, and because he was greater, he saw proper to institute laws whereby the rest could have the privilege of advancing like himself.
2: Yeah, quoting the King Follett Discourse there.
0: So, I guess guess one other question. I don't know if this is from Joseph Smith or from Later Thought, but I remember reading in some official Mormon text that, at least a popular strain, is that God's power and authority arise because he is i don't know if you say obedient to or in conformity or has mastery of the laws of the universe and i guess that's sort of a would so view of you know this great scientist this master things but so you're not saying that god's authority arises from his obedience to laws or conformance with the laws of a pre-existing universe you say back to i guess your indwelling unity do, do you see any place for his I know obedience isn't the right word. That's what I keep thinking of, though. But Anyway, his mastery of the universal laws is any source of power. Like, the thing is, getting indwelling love, does that give you, crude terms, basically magical powers where suddenly you can master the universe? Or do you think you still have to, along the way, learn all the laws of physics and stuff like that that you say is not necessarily the only thing for divinity? But I, I don't know. Are you just saying that because of transhumanism? Or is that something that is important? No, I believe that that
2: what's happening is that when we become one, fully one, with the divine persons in the Godhead, we participate fully in the divine knowledge. It's revealed to us immediately. It'd be like being connected into the huge database of all laws. You don't need to learn the laws. There may be experiential knowledge in mastering the laws that, that we're all still working on, but I suggest the laws that are important are not the laws of physics. They're the laws of love, the laws of relationships. People are ever-changing dynamic mysteries, and that doesn't change. And so throughout all of eternity, we'll be discovering what there is to discover from each other as we creatively change and grow. I've been married to my wife now for a month shy of, of 39 years, and she's a complete mystery to me. Not in the I, I can complete most of her sentences. <laughs> I don't mean to say I don't know her. But because she's a dynamic, growing, interesting person, I'm constantly amazed at the New depth that I find in her and the new insights that she brings to my life, and I suspect that it's that way forever with and, and you know take and multiply that to the to the infinity of the power with God forever we will be learning about each other, and the laws that are relevant as we grow are, are the laws of learning to increase our capacity for joy, of learning to increase our capacity for demonstrating love and being loving, and certainly mastery. You know, I I always picture God up there. There are billions and billions, trillions of of planets and stars out there. And every time we send a, a probe out to look at the moons or the planets or, you know, what's close to us, we see these amazing things that we've never noticed before, couldn't notice because we didn't have the technology and the sheer beauty and the magnificence of it all. And yet God is aware of all these things. I think he's proud of his work. I think he thinks it's well done. And that he gets endless enjoyment and and is constantly amazed at the the beauty and takes great joy in it. And, you know, it's just endless, the way that it's always recreating and organizing. You know, I just think of God as the master connoisseur of beauty and the master connoisseur of the appreciation of the creativity and remarkable nature of each individual person. And the master connoisseur of The different ways that the laws of nature can be created and what happens and what falls out from the laws of nature. And then his constant amazement and enjoyment in watching us grow. But I think he also takes great amazement in looking at a rose as it blooms and watching the way that DNA matches up when it replicates. And there's this endless, vast universe of knowledge and and growing in interpersonal love with one another. There are so many dimensions of human life. And God's mastery is with respect to all of these dimensions. So I don't mean to exclude any dimensions. And certainly the kind of technological mastery that we're talking about is a part of it. But it's not like there's some part of the universe that God just hasn't quite gotten to yet. And when he gets there, he might discover he can't really organize it or bring it within the scope of his mastery. And he's really struggling with it and working with it. It's an ongoing unfolding of new creativity, the way I see it and the way that I believe the scriptures lay it out. And I believe that that's what's been revealed. And I, you know I think that's just an amazingly inspiring view.
0: And one last question that's related to the indwelling unity. I know you might not be able to answer this, but in your view, there's not one kind of intelligence. There are two kinds of intelligence. There's the personal intelligences, which are the individual beings. I can understand how an indwelling unity would do that but i'm i'm kind of missing how would indwelling love and relationship give you any I don't, I don't know if power is the right word but any influence or anything over this other type of intelligence can you have a relationship with this other type of intelligence
2: well certainly the other type of intel i've just defined those types of intelligences that deterministically follow natural laws as opposed to personal intelligences that have the capacity for free will and, and cognitive creativity Certainly, we can have a relationship. The natural world as a whole is that kind of intelligence. And to the extent we enjoy the beauty in nature and to the extent that we, you know, master and work with the scientific world and learn about it, it's inherently valuable and inherently fascinating. The fact that I believe that when we enter into this relationship, we become omniscient in the sense that we know all that there is to be known doesn't mean that all that there is to be known isn't isn't forever increasing and moving forward. And so keep in mind that, yeah, we are necessarily in a relationship and a part of what we've been called to is to have a stewardship over the natural world to, pr- to protect it, to be wise with respect to it and to love it and to treat it as a very valuable gift that we've been given to not master, but to be master of in the sense that we are required to take care of it. We are required to assist it to grow and to realize its potential and to work with it to organize it into beauty. And so that's how, you know, certainly we have that kind of relationship. It's not an either-or.
0: And then, I mean, that is the end of this, but I guess since we're closing out the Mormon view of Godhead, I guess next time we're going to go into some possible criticisms, but just in the end here, is there anything else you'd like to say for the strength of the Mormon view on this?
2: Well, I think what I've demonstrated is that the Mormon view avoids the Trinitarian logical problem. And the problem there is exposed as metaphysical monotheism or the premise of metaphysical monotheism. That's no small accomplishment. Once again, notice what Joseph Smith has done. He cut the Gordian knot and solved the problem of Christology by getting rid of the notion of creation ex nihilo. He cuts the Gordian knot of the logical problem of the Trinity as well. And these are perennial problems in Christian theology. And so it's time to begin to recognize the inherent genius in Joseph Smith's revelations and in what he presented. It really is an amazing feat on his part. I don't think he was setting out to solve those problems. It just comes together that way. And it comes together in a way that is both inspiring and amazingly logically coherent as I see it. So I think we ought to appreciate the gift that that Joseph Smith has given us through his revelations. And, you know, anybody who studied the life of Joseph Smith knows that it came at a very high cost to him.
0: All right. Well, we went a little long. Thanks for sticking with us. And we will continue next time. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploring Mormon thought.